Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Sadly, the first part of Randy Gregory's story is not unusual. A gifted athlete's career implodes as they drown in a world of drugs and alcohol. But the next chapter is where the impossible happened. With the dogged help of an attorney who took up his cause, Gregory slowly worked his way back from rock bottom to the Dallas Cowboys. And more importantly, Gregory isn't just playing football again, he's finally himself again. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Liz Merrill as we talk about how the power of hope can bring an NFL dream back to life. Now we present I Was Just in a Real Bad Place by Elizabeth Merrill. Just after dawn, in the middle of a relapse last winter, a fleet of dark SUVs rolled up and took Randy Gregory away. He was half awake and had been partying the night before, so his recollection of the details probably isn't exact. He remembers about 15 men, most of them clad in dark suits. They look like the feds. The men worked swiftly, ushering him into one of the SUVs bound for the airport. They did not give him time to pack. Gregory, once a promising defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys, had spent the better part of 2017 underground. He had been suspended from the NFL for repeatedly violating the league's substance abuse policy and was still smoking pot and had very little chance of ever returning to the NFL. In early December 2017, he sent a text to his lawyer. I'm a 25-year-old pro athlete with no friends, no income, job. Can't make my own decisions or go as I please. Have to check in with everyone for approval. He couldn't go home because his relationship with his soon-to-be ex was disintegrating, and he couldn't be with his two-year-old daughter, Sophia, the one perfect thing in his life. He could not see his coaches or hang out in the locker room because NFL rules prohibited for him from being in the facility. He had taken his belongings and moved into the Hyatt House, an extended stay hotel four minutes away from the Cowboys' headquarters. He would sit at the hotel bar, drink Coronas, and wonder what could have been. He had lost roughly 40 pounds from his six-foot-six frame, making him look more like a shooting guard than an NFL player. One day, a bartender asked whether he was a ball player, and Gregory flashed an embarrassed smile. He didn't really know who he was. His lawyer, Daniel Moskowitz, had been on his case to check into a rehab clinic in Southern California. Moskowitz booked flights, but Gregory resisted. Moskowitz tried the good cop route at first, sending texts saying encouraging things like, you're better than this, Randy. But eventually, the words revolved to, you're f***ing going. Moskowitz watched from a distance when the men in the dark suits came for Gregory. Moskowitz will not say who they were. I made an extreme call, he says, and the cavalry came. The cavalry took Gregory to a flight to California, where he spent more than six months in a rehab center in a sober living house. He acknowledged his addiction and mental health issues and worked to get sober. Today, he is back in the NFL on a Cowboys team surging toward the postseason. Moskowitz says Gregory is a great American comeback story. It's f***ing Rudy on steroids, he says. 
But for now, let's take his four sacks, 15 tackles, and the size of him exploding off the edge for what it is, a hopeful start. Gregory's story isn't just about where he's been. It's about where he still has to go. Tonight, he will go home to his apartment near the Cowboys facility, and he'll probably run into his accountability partner who lives with him. Gregory will be drug tested frequently this month, possibly as many as 10 times. His status as an active NFL player is tenuous. Another slip up and everything could be gone. The first time Randy Gregory tried marijuana, he was a senior in high school. He skipped a basketball practice shoot around, gathered with a bunch of giggling teenagers and took a hit. They went to McDonald's afterward to cure the munchies. But Gregory realized that he was not high or even buzzed. He didn't feel a thing. He tried it again a week later with much different results. I was stuck standing, he says. I felt like if I moved, I was going to float away. He eventually found comfort in that feeling of things slowing down. He would eventually smoke marijuana by himself, believing it made him feel more normal. From the outside, normal is a word that can be used to describe Gregory's childhood. He grew up in a supportive home, with a mother who ran pastorals with him in the yard and a father who played football at Northwestern. Ken Gregory went on to a successful business consulting career in the medical field, and the only downside to his promotions was that it meant that the family was on the move often. They shuffled to Alabama and Florida and Tennessee and Ohio and Missouri and Indiana, and oftentimes when Randy walked into a new classroom, he didn't see many kids who looked like him. Each place carried a common theme, that Gregory didn't fit in. The move to Ohio was particularly hard. He was about eight years old. He wanted to look good for his first day in school, so he got a haircut at the barber shop. The Clippers gave him an infection that left a large bald spot in the back of his head. And when he sat at his desk, he could hear the children behind him laughing. He couldn't understand how the same kids who picked him for football at recess, because he was good, would turn around and tease him and beat him up later. They would do things that would affect me physically and mentally, Gregory says. I wasn't always six foot six. I was always taught to defend myself, but I was never one to look for trouble. I never understood why kids would mess with me. Years later, a doctor at one of the treatment centers Gregory attended as an adult would say that Gregory experienced PTSD from the bullying. He also has dealt with self-esteem issues, depression, anxiety, and panic attacks. His father did not know that he was struggling. The funny thing about him, Ken Gregory says, is that he was so good at everything he did. Randy is smart. He procrastinated, sure, but he always got by. Every sport he played, he was a natural. He would pick up a golf club and hit it better than any adult in Ken's foursome. He won the first wrestling meet he ever competed in when he was eight or nine. It was at that meet that Ken got a glimpse of Randy's struggles. He'd been presented his trophy, Ken says, and we were in the locker room, just me and him. And he kind of had what I would describe as a panic attack, and it baffled me. I was like, son, it's okay. You don't have to worry about this anymore. You won. Years later, I look back on that day saying, was that the first sign that he was really struggling with anxiety? You question yourself. 
What could I have done better? What did I miss? You question everything. The bullying abated by eighth grade when the Gregorys moved to Fishers, Indiana, a fast-growing suburb of Indianapolis. A growth spurt made Brandy bigger and stronger, and the change of scenery offered a clean slate. The kids at Hamilton Southeastern High School didn't know about the bald spot, the torment, or his fragile confidence. Gregory could dunk a basketball and terrify quarterbacks. How could he not exude confidence? Gregory was tardy a lot, especially his senior year. In 2011, he signed a letter of intent to play at Purdue, about an hour away from his new hometown. His SAT scores were good enough. His grades weren't. Senioritis, he'd later tell a reporter doing a pre-draft story on him. Gregory would have to go the junior college route to Arizona Western College. He was on the move again. Before he left for Yuma, Gregory decided he would stop smoking pot. He was going to college now. His future was right in front of him, and he needed to focus on his grades in football. But once again, he did not fit in. Many of his teammates did not have a mom who played football in the yard or a dad with a job that could keep his family in the suburbs. Some of his teammates were, well, pretty rough characters. They came from rough backgrounds. It was like, I'm too proper for the black kids and too black for the white kids, Gregory says. It was a different breed of guys, and a lot of times there, I would be smoking by myself just to kind of get away from people. He had nine sacks his freshman season and helped take the Matadors to the national championship game. Though he broke his leg the following season, the University of Nebraska's interest didn't wane. Gregory arrived in Lincoln in August 2013. His first time on the field, the Cornhuskers ran a five-man blitz, and the offense completed a slant pass on a hot read. Gregory was dropping into the boundary, chased down the ball, and caught the receiver. Nebraska's coaches looked at each other in wonderment. They went up to Gregory and told him that it was a hell of a play, an NFL play. He looked at us like that was what he was supposed to do, says former defensive line coach Rick Kaczynski. I don't think he understands he can do things that other people can't do. Kaczynski calls Gregory a once-in-every-20-years talent, fast, explosive, and unbelievably fluid for a six-foot-six frame. And he was tough, Kaczynski says, playing through the 2014 Holiday Bowl with a knee injury, turf toe, and a sinus infection. Gregory picked up the Huskers' defense so fast that first season that he led the Big Ten with ten and a half sacks. He also reportedly failed two drug tests while he was there. But that would not be a deal-breaker when Gregory decided to forego his senior season to enter the 2015 NFL Draft. Let's face it, young men, including young football players in the NFL, smoke marijuana. In a 2016 ESPN NFL Nation confidential survey, nearly a quarter of those polled said they knew of an NFL player who smoked marijuana before a game. Gregory says he smoked every day during his pre-draft training in Atlanta, and he wasn't alone. One of his NFL-bound training buddies smoked right along with him. Gregory was making around $6,000 a week. And how cool was that, getting paid to work out? I'm thinking I'm like a big baller, he says. He would wake up at 6 a.m., train, and be finished by noon. 
he'd go to the mall and smoke the rest of the day. He and his friend, who Gregory won't name, got some solid advice. They needed to stop smoking a month away from the combine to avoid testing positive. The friend stopped at the one-month mark. Gregory decided to push it a little and waited an extra three or four days. His friend did not test positive for marijuana. Gregory did. And so started the pothead jokes and the smoke-filled memes. He was hurt by the critics who called him stupid and annoyed by the ones who suggested that he actually blazed up during the combine. He said he didn't smoke at the combine. He is convinced that the positive test isn't what turned teens off. No, Gregory believes a pre-draft questionnaire did him in. It asked whether he had ever been depressed or thought about killing himself. Gregory checked yes for both. I was honest about it, Gregory says. There are teams that took me off their board because they're like, this kid's not here, or he's got issues. He acknowledges that he made some bad first impressions, like the missed interview with the Oakland Raiders because he fell asleep at the airport gate. He had to do his next stop, San Diego, but his luggage headed to Oakland. The Chargers gave him some clothes to wear, and in hindsight, it probably wasn't a good idea to show up for the next interview in Arizona wearing Chargers gear. The mock draft that projected him so high had him plummeting now. Some teams took him off their boards. You could tell he was a big marijuana guy, says one NFL decision maker who spoke on the condition of anonymity. He couldn't stay focused. His eyes were everywhere. And I felt bad for him. But I would not draft a guy no matter what after I got done with that interview. The tape said yes. The interview said no. Despite the free fall, Gregory insisted on attending the draft in Chicago. Ken and Mary Gregory accompanied their son. He was the last one in the green room. At 9.09 p.m., as the first night of the draft wound down, Gregory sent a text to Cowboys coach Jason Garrett. Gregory felt as if he connected with the Cowboys. In the weeks before the draft, he had a heart-to-heart talk with owner Jerry Jones. He cried, Gregory says. He said, I know what it's like to be publicly scrutinized. Dallas selected him the following day in the second round with the 60th overall pick. Gregory says the coaches printed out the text he'd sent to Garrett on draft night and have reminded him about it over the years. I learned from this, the text said. I know players say things like this all the time, but with everything going on, I can really see how this can all go away in a minute. I know you can help me be great. Please believe in me. Gregory wanted to live up to his pledge. He flashed great promise at the start of his rookie year. He had three sacks in the preseason, and on opening day against the New York Giants, he applied pressure to Eli Manning three times in just 18 snaps. But he suffered a high ankle sprain in the fourth quarter, was out for a month, and did not look the same upon his return. He didn't record his first tackle until week 10 of the 2015 season. He was not one to open up about his disappointment. I don't want people worrying about me, he says. If I'm in a f***ed up mood, I want to be in a f***ed up mood by myself. That's where the isolation comes into effect. It probably doesn't help. In February 2016, Gregory was suspended four games for violating the league's drug policy. He failed another drug test a couple of months later and was suspended 10 more games. 
In November 2016 came another failed test. This time, he was facing at least a year-long ban. Dr. Vernon Williams, director of the Center for Sports Neurology and Pain Management at Cedars-Sinai Curlin Job Institute in Los Angeles, says that young adulthood is often a time when depression and anxiety emerge. Williams says that young professional athletes also face many mental health stressors, such as new financial responsibility, travel, disordered sleep, and intense scrutiny on social media. They often have pain because of injuries. So there's kind of this perfect storm in that period of life where they may be subject to emotional and psychological issues, Williams says. And it's right at the same time when there's this increased availability of marijuana. Most people use it in the company of others, so it's kind of a personal storm. But Williams, who is also the team neurologist for the Los Angeles Rams, says that marijuana can actually exacerbate mental health symptoms. Street-use marijuana, he says, often contains higher levels of THC, which can contribute to cognitive impairment. It can contribute to other mental health status changes and possibly contribute to anxiety. There's a mixed picture there, Williams says, and a potential to depression as well. Gregory had previously tried to quit drugs during his NFL banishment. He went to a renowned rehab clinic in Texas in the summer of 2017. He was stripped of his cell phone. He needed to get rid of all the bad influences in his life and was handed a flip phone. He was an inpatient with a number and was placed in the professionals in crisis program. He estimates that he was the youngest person in the group. Gregory was supposed to make $781,813 in base salary that year. He was in Texas, but a planet away from football. For as many keyboard critics who belittled Gregory, none of them was as critical as Gregory was on himself. He did not think he would ever play again. He did not think he was deserving of happiness. Still, lawyers and agents would call Gregory's parents, offering their services. Gregory didn't want to spend what little money he had on an attorney, and he certainly didn't trust any of them. In the spring of 2017, Moskowitz reached out to the Gregories. And by that summer, Moskowitz had his first meeting with Gregory in a mall in Houston. He had a level of confidence about him, Gregory's father said of Moskowitz. It was almost like he was saying, I know I can do this. I can't promise you anything. The only thing I can promise is that I'll work my tail off to make it happen. Daniel Moskowitz has dealt with anxiety and fear. He has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, goes days without sleeping, and thrives in chaos. In the spring of 2017, he got Arizona Cardinals linebacker Daryl Washington reinstated after a three-year suspension from repeated violations of the NFL's drug policy. Growing up as one of the only Jewish people in Marion, Virginia, Moskowitz says he understands what it's like to feel different. Gregory was in the middle of a rehab stint when he met Moskowitz. Look, man, I'm going to be straight up, Gregory told Moskowitz. If you f*** this up, my mom's going to kill you. Moskowitz showed up at the treatment facility nearly every day with fast food. If visiting hours ended in 20 minutes, he would usually stay two hours. They would develop an unconventional attorney-client relationship, bickering like a married couple, 
with Moskowitz becoming invested in Gregory's recovery. Example number one, when Gregory started spiraling in late 2017, he asked Moskowitz to stay with him because he didn't want to be alone. Agent Blake Barax calls Moskowitz diligent, passionate, and a savant. The NFL substance abuse policy is complicated, Barax says, and can leave offenders feeling isolated and abandoned. Moskowitz sees something wrong and he wants to fix it, Barax says. I just think with people like Randy, when they get to the point where they're suspended a year or two years and they have to follow all these rules and regulations, they don't really have anyone guiding them that's experienced in the drug program, that's experienced in the legal side of things. So they kind of get abandoned. If you've got a guy who's smoking weed every day and all of a sudden you take away the one constant in their life, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, well, he's probably not going to get out of that rut. When Gregory completed his 2017 Texas rehab stint, he had so much anxiety that he was shaking on the drive back to Dallas. He was very scared to go back, Moskowitz says. One of the first things Gregory needed was structure. He took a marketing job at Genesto Sports Enterprises. One day, Gregory made an attempt to bond with his coworkers by offering to pick up the tab for their drinks. When he went to pay, his card was declined. Everything in his life seemed to be a failure. He had no money and no hope, and he became consumed with negative thoughts. I was just in a real bad place, Gregory says. Moskowitz had one request for Gregory. If he started smoking again, please tell him. But by December, Gregory wasn't just smoking marijuana. He was out of control. This time, Gregory had a support system to guide him. He wouldn't just go to inpatient treatment for 60 days and then leave and hope that it took. He'd have safeguards to help ensure his sobriety. He'd move into a sober living house and go to daily meetings and psychotherapy sessions. He admitted he was an addict and put his fears and regrets down on paper. He estimated that he lost millions and regretted that he wasn't the father he knew he could be. Inspiration sometimes comes from unexpected places. And one of the people who had a big impact on Gregory in California was Mike Ornstein. Ornstein, who was at the center of the Reggie Bush extra benefit scandal, told him that life is not defined by the mistakes you make, but by the people who you help. There is symmetry in the fact that Ornstein and Gregory's agent, Steve Weinberg, helped get him back into the league. Weinberg was decertified and barred by the NFLPA for about a decade. And now here they were, two guys cast away from the NFL, helping Gregory's comeback. While Gregory was in Los Angeles, Moskowitz put together a 2,000-page petition for reinstatement. The paperwork filled six boxes. In June, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell granted them a meeting in New York. The meeting was supposed to be at 1 p.m., and Gregory and Moskowitz were supposed to meet in the hotel lobby at noon. Moskowitz wasn't there, so Gregory went up to Moskowitz's room. He was sitting in front of his laptop, Gregory says, with just underwear on, no T-shirt, everywhere in the room, earplugs on. I was like, we got to go, man. Somehow they made it in time. The meeting lasted about two hours. A month after their meeting, Moskowitz was at a Jamba Juice eating in a Kai Bowl when he got an email. Gregory had been conditionally reinstated. 
Moskowitz dropped the Akai ball all over the floor and ran out to the parking lot and screamed with glee. He cried when he called Gregory. The guy who was never supposed to play in the NFL again was going to be in the Cowboys training camp in Oxnard, California. In Randy's case, our eyes were wide open with some of the issues he had when we drafted him, Jason Garrett told reporters during training camp this past summer. We were committed to providing a structure around him that would hopefully help him address some of the issues and eventually be a really good player for us and be a great citizen on our team and in our community. A spokesperson for the NFL declined to comment for this story, saying the league does not discuss specific players because of confidentiality provisions and the drug policy. In September, ESPN's Adam Schefter wrote that the NFL has become more tolerant when a player violates the drug policy, emphasizing treatment and support rather than discipline. When asked about this via email, the spokesperson did not respond. Would the NFL punish the Cowboys if they were connected to the Cavalry, even if it might have saved Gregory's life? Dallas owner Jerry Jones declined to be interviewed for this story. It was opening day of that 2018 NFL season, and everyone was excited. Children with sparkly stars on their hats were roughhousing in the lobby of an upscale hotel in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Cowboys were in town to play the Panthers, and here was the best thing yet. Randy Gregory was going to play football in a regular season game for the first time in 616 days. He brought a freshly pressed suit jacket and tan pants for the bus ride over to Bank of America Stadium. Moskowitz took a seat in the hotel restaurant and ordered a breakfast befitting a man who represents legally challenged players, a pot of coffee and a diet Red Bull. Sometime after 10 a.m., old highlights of Gregory flashed on a TV, and then came breaking news from Schefter. Gregory had relapsed, sources said. He could face discipline. Moskowitz's phone immediately blew up with texts from reporters. He ignored them for a call with Mary Gregory. Have you been crying? He asked her. Mrs. Gregory, don't cry. He's going to make it. Gregory says he did not fail a drug test. Relapse in Grandy Gregory's ultra-controlled world does not necessarily mean he did drugs. It can mean he skipped a treatment plan or missed a drug test. Gregory's camp won't comment on exactly what happened, but he has not been suspended for any of the Cowboys' 12 games. He did play in the game against the Panthers, but his debut was over by halftime. He collided with teammate Demarcus Lawrence and suffered a concussion. Cowboys defensive coordinator Rod Marinelli said the plan was to wean Gregory back this season. In some ways, he was more behind than the rookies. He was not at OTAs, and hasn't played in a game since 2016. He also had his knee scoped in October. The Cowboys have needed him, and he has been a disruptive force on a defensive line that's considered one of the best in the NFL. He had three sacks in a four-game stretch. On Thanksgiving against the Washington Redskins, Gregory was in such an intense battle with Pro Bowl tackle Trent Williams that Williams wound up in the hospital with a bruised rib. Defensive ends often rate their happiness and success on the number of sacks they have. And when Gregory brought down Blake Bortles in a win over the Jacksonville Jaguars on October 14th, his confidence soared. It was his first sack since 2016. 
Cowboys defensive tackle Malik Collins, who roomed with Gregory at Nebraska, says Gregory seems more comfortable with himself now. Seeing him back is a testament to his hard work, Collins says, and the things he had to do to get better. Gregory is eating steak and fried rice at the Shoji Sushi and Hibachi in Frisco, Texas, six miles away from the Hyatt House where he used to live. It's a festive night. It's always festive when shrimp is flying. And every 20 minutes or so, the drums beat for someone's birthday. Moskowitz and his boss at Gordon and Reese, Bob Bragalone, are seated at the table. Bragalone is called Cowboy Bob because he has one of the world's largest collections of Cowboys memorabilia. Moskowitz is wearing one of Gregory's sweatshirts, and the blue hoodie hangs down to his legs. A guy stops at the table and asks for an autograph, and it seems to make Gregory happy. It's affirmation that he's back and that people know who he is, a ball player. Some people consider my life boring, Gregory says. I don't. It's what keeps me out of trouble. I see how hard it was before, and I see how easy it can be for me now. Go to practice, come home, hang out. My day's pretty simple. For now, he is back on the field. It hasn't been perfect, of course. Progress never is. Thursday night, in one of the biggest games of the season against New Orleans, Gregory was flagged for three crucial second-half penalties. Twitter erupted, fans were livid, but the Cowboys still won, and, like most things, the outrage quelled and people moved on. After the game, Gregory did not talk to reporters. He wanted to clear his head, so he got in his car and took a drive. He loves driving because it represents freedom. He drove past the stadium lights and the leaves turning brown. Jerry Jones and Jason Garrett spoke in support of Gregory. They're not giving up on him. The calendar turned to December, the one-year anniversary of Gregory hitting rock bottom. Maybe the penalties seem smaller. Randy Gregory's playing football again. He's drawing a paycheck and fighting to stay clean. It's December, and there's hope. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Liz Merrow. Liz, thank you once again for making the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So first of all, Liz, this is um, the thing that I got out of this great story you have here more than anything else is like even the darkest time, it seemed that and even when he when Gregory was back and in action, it seemed that this was more than anything an amazing story about hope. And, yeah. And like, you know, how that more than anything is something that like don't underestimate the power of hope. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that though, because I've also heard sort of, and I've sort of gotten the vibe that Randy, at least for a decent part of his life, is a guy who always thought the worst case scenario was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he never, he just sort of had, which is amazing for an athlete, you know, it's someone who's as good as him, but he just always sort of had the mentality for a portion of his life where he just assumed that things weren't going to work out. Now, maybe that became a lot more amplified, you know, during his suspension, mm-hmm. 
and of course, you know, why wouldn't it when, you know, you, you don't see a date, you know, with the athletes, they have goals, they set, they have seasons that start and, you know, you can aim to next year, but with him, he didn't know when he was going to get it back in the league. And, you know, he told me that he was pretty sure he was never going to get back in the league. So with that in mind, but you're right. I mean, there is hope for him now. You know, he's he's got a daughter that, you know, is everything to him. And he has this incredible talent. And, you know, he just turned 26. Right. And when you think about it, uh, you know, he hasn't played for two years. Um, I know it's not like he's not like a running back where that wear and tear is as evident. But, you know, he's just in some ways just getting out of the gate. You know, he was injured his rookie year and you know, then the suspensions kind of took hold. So I think for, you know, the Cowboys are really patient with him, but it's it's still a deal where people are still waiting to see what Randy Gregory can do. And, and, you know, this top five pick he was projected in the 2015 draft, if, you know, what he can, if he's, if he can live up to that early promise that he had. It's, yeah, a couple of things on, on what you said is is um, as you talk about how yeah, there's not as much wear and tear, but like I think there is some perspective missing here for some people in the sense that like most of us, you know, we will get a job like you get out of whatever the end of your education, you get a job, and then wh- wherever you're going to do, you plan on kind of doing whatever for about forty years. And in the NFL, the average yeah. career is like you know like five years or so. So yes, like oh yes, he missed that season. But people need to realize like that's sort of the equivalent of most of us losing a decade of our career, as far as like a proportion. Yeah. But um, yeah, and no, go ahead. Oh well, I mean that was why this last intervention or whatever you want to call it, uh, when he was taken away. Uh, by this mystery caravan, uh, that was pretty much it, you know. And I think that played a decent part of it. This was his last chance. Um, if another, you know, he, if he, there was another year that went by, um, he's probably not back in the league because right. then you're looking at him being like 27 and not playing for so long. I mean, this was it for him. And I think at some point that sort of clicked with him that. You know, still, still not thinking it was going to happen, just uh, because you know the negative thoughts. But yeah, I think that that was part of it. It's like now or never. But also, you know, I think his daughter played a big part in it. Mm-hmm. You know, just knowing that he this was taking him away, spending all these times in these rehab clinics were taking him away from her and and from being sort of the person you know that he could be for her right. and to support her because. You know, that was another thing. I, I, I mean, it's eye-opening in some ways because I think the average person thinks that players, oh, you know, they're making at least – NFL guys are making at least $5 million a year. Mm-hmm. So they can't be – and if they're broke, then it must mean that they've squandered all this money. Right. Well, Randy didn't get a paycheck for, all, for like two years, and it's not like he was making millions to begin with um, because he dropped – so much in the draft. He didn't go until 60th overall. Um, he, you know, he was scheduled to make um, over 700,000. I know 
most people are like, wow, that's a lot of money. I could live on that for a long time. Yeah. But in his case, he's got a lot of other, exp- I mean, the, the cost of some of these treatment centers can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, especially these in-treatment, you know, so, in, inpatient, most, yeah. uh, multiple month scenarios. Yes. And so without a job, without a paycheck, it becomes very challenging. And for someone who's not even dealing with mental health issues, I'm sure it can seem like it's a very large hill to climb. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of legal legalese that you've got to deal with. And boy, if I, I wouldn't be able to figure that stuff out, I'm, I'm sure, not that I'm the bar of intelligence or anything, <laughs> but um, I think the average person would not be able to figure out all the things, all the steps you need to go through to get back in the league. And that's a, that's a great point you bring up. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you on that. Um, first of all, what you just mentioned, where you get uh, Gregory's attorney, uh, Daniel uh, Moskowitz, there seems to be the value that he had wasn't necessarily just as like, as an advocate, which of him, like of mm-hmm. someone who really cared about this person, but it seems that there's this black hole that people fall into in an NFL suspension where forget it. Like before we even get to what you said about all the treatment and how much that costs, but there seems to be sure. the, the ability to navigate the path back to reinstatement is one that is filled with like legal pitfalls that nobody, very few people could navigate that do not have a legal degree. Uh, and you're talking about at best the people that fall into these category into these suspensions at best if they stayed for four years and were good students at best have a bachelor's degree and now you're dealing in yeah. now they're in this you know it's almost like this is the slippery slope like this is they're now a ball rolling down a hill to obscurity because not only are they having chemical dependency issues or mental health issues. But now they have no ability to figure out how to get back up, not because necessarily because of the mental strain of recovering from addiction, but like who knows who to file, what paperwork and where to go. Yeah. So, you know, under the NFL rules, you know, you can't be at the team facility. Right. There's one person who can have, I believe, weekly contact with a suspended player, one person from the organization but it's not like Randy could walk in and, and ask like Jerry Jones, Hey, wh- what, what can I do here? But, yeah. you know, just as important, you know, when you take a guy who, what, what is their support system? Yeah. It's family. If they've got a supportive family, which, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, Randy did luckily, mm-hmm. but like he felt like that wasn't for probably a few reasons why he didn't want to just run home to his parents. You know, he felt like he failed. But what's your other support system in that situation? It's your team. I mean, these are the guys you are with in the locker room that you sweat with in training camp. These are like, you know, brotherhood is used probably a lot and Mm -hmm. overused. But, like, these are the guys that that you know the most for some of these guys. And, you you know, it was – I mean, it's not funny, but it was interesting – you know, one of our, well, the guy who, Chris Brow is, is the guy who's our, the head of our NFL group. And he's sort of had this fascination with, uh, with Randy for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I'm like working on other things, like I remember I was at the combine and, you know, you, you ask around 
And if you ask anybody, like, who was supposedly fairly close to Randy, how he's doing, it was like you're asking where Al Capone was. Um, they were like, no, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know anything. And I'm sure it was a function of maybe some of them knew how bad it was. But I'm also thinking it's because they knew they couldn't, you know, that the team, you know, he couldn't be in the facility and, and that, you know, that his contact with the team was limited, that, you know, it's not like he could be in a coach's office or anything. And in Randy's case, part of it was that he was embarrassed. You know, I, I talked to his college, his, um, his coach's JUCO coach, and, you know, it, like over a year ago, it just kind of shows you how sometimes with these stories you might not get anything and you kind of stick a pin in it and kind of wait until maybe, you know, send out pitches and do all this stuff and eventually maybe, you know, something works out. But I remember talking to his JUCO coach like a year ago and he said that, you know, he hadn't talked to Randy, but it didn't surprise him because when Randy's embarrassed or, or, or you know, ashamed of something, he disappears. He doesn't want to feel like he's disappointed people. And I think that was, you know, so it was, it was that, but it was also, you know, hey, he's, he's not supposed to be in the facility and we're not going to talk about him. And, but yeah, that's, so that's one of their support systems. So you don't have that support system, you may not have any money, which mm-hmm. means you can't hire a lawyer. Right. Um, which you, you know, desperate, which you desperately need. Yeah, because you you need somebody who's going to fight for you and navigate through, you know, what is a pretty comprehensive policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of guys are in this situation, and so there's nothing you can do, and so you're just like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm I'm just going to keep smoking weed, or you know, I'm not getting back in the league. I mean, uh, a lot of people probably lose hope. Right. Um, you know, one thing is Moskowitz. I don't think he was making money off of him. You know, definitely last. In fact, I know he wasn't last year when he took him on. Um, now, eventually, you know, some people, some attorneys might think, okay, this, you know, if it's somebody as talented as Randy is, that eventually it's going to pay off, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Moskowitz made it sound like, you know, he was invested in the player, in the, in the person, you know. I mean, that was one thing he really stressed was that, you know, they sort of had this, you know, they were, they became very close and he probably became too attached to Randy in the process along the way. So talking about Randy though, like the origins of all this, um, have like, have they really found like through all the therapies that he's gone through, like, have they really found the origins of this? Like, I know you mentioned his father talked about like certain anxieties he had, even when he was like being very successful in sports. Like, I guess the question I have from that is, do you think there's something that they feel that they could have monitored a little bit earlier in his life that could have maybe pointed things in a different direction? Yeah. You know, um, Ken Gregory said that they weren't helicopter parents, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they weren't completely, always, you know, engaged in, and, you know, one of the reasons is they travel a lot for work, but it's not like he would, you know, interfere with his kids. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't necessarily say his dad played football at Northwestern and, but yet he didn't say, Hey, I want you to play football. Um, they have three sons. Um, and Randy didn't give any sort of outward appearance of anything being wrong because 
you know, how could things be wrong if they're doing so well in things? Like you're doing so well in sports, you know, you're an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Um, there were like no outward signs except for there was a moment when he was like eight years old and he had a, what is now probably that Ken figures was a panic attack after he won a wrestling mate. And he, you know, got very nervous and anxious in the locker room and Ken couldn't figure out why, but, you know, not being a child psychiatrist and, Mm -hmm. and with Randy, you know, and that's the, you know, and with the bullying though, I think that, you know, I was told that there is at some point during one of his um, treatment, one of the doctors at one of the treatment centers had said that he had PTSD from the bullying as a kid. And, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone who's been bullied, they generally do not tell their parents. No. It's an embarrassing, you know, humiliating experience. And you don't, you don't want, you know, your parents to know that you're going through this and that, you, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. And so they didn't know he was bullied, you know, until much later. So, yeah, there weren't any signs. But, you know, when you think about that time in his life, the bullying obviously had, a, a, you know, a profound effect on, you know, some of the things that would come up later in his life. And, you know, he's has social anxiety uh, that probably exacerbated that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a, believe me, I'm not a psychiatrist, but, you know, all those things contributed to, you know, his drug usage. And I think right. that's probably why he needed somebody to be able to articulate that in a way that, you know, the league would see. And, you know, one thing, uh, you know, that Jenna Janovey, my editor, mentioned, and I'm glad we were able to get in in the story, is Adam Schefter had reported, you know, like around the beginning of the season that the NFL, and I'd heard this too, uh, that the NFL has sort of shifted a little in just like, you know, being super punitive and every time, you know, someone fails a test and, you know, trying to stress that, you know, they get treatment. And um, so maybe not like, you know, you smoked marijuana, you know, you tested positive, you're out for, you know, X amount of games. They're trying to, but I couldn't get anyone in the league to confirm that because they, you know, didn't want to comment for any aspect of the story. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, you know, his story. And I think, that was one of the reasons why we were so interested in him. You know, I, many moons ago, I covered Nebraska, the Nebraska football team. Um, it was like, it was in like the days of, it was like Frank Solich's, uh, maybe a year or two of Frank Solich. And then the one year of Bill Callahan. And, um, and although I never covered Randy when he was there, I still talked to a lot of people who, you know, were around the team. And that was one thing I always heard about Randy Gregory of, Besides, you know, what you can see, tremendous talent. But just that, you know, he was dealing with some stuff and that he wasn't necessarily the person that he was being portrayed. You know, I think any time, you know, the average person sees someone who had so much going for them sort of squandering it by, you know, smoking marijuana, especially when, you know, you know what times you're going to be tested, at least in the league, you know, they they get angry at those people, you know, because they've got these opportunities and they're blowing them. Right. But in Randy's case, you know, and in probably a lot of other guys' cases, there's more to the story. And so I always sort of had heard that. And, you know, I'd also heard if you could actually pin him down and interview him, that he's an amazing interview. 
Um, I I won't go into. I, I'll just give you a little bit of. Uh, you know, I, I knew he didn't want to do the interview. I, I texted him. I mean, he definitely did not want to do the interview. I, I texted him a lot of times. I mean, not to the point of, like, you know, bothering him or anything. But, like, um, but you know, uh, Moskowitz was saying, yeah, you know, here, you know, reach out to him. And, you know, and so, I, you know, he didn't want to do it. And I think at one point, you know, he, I, I, I knew there was, like, a lot of, let's just say there was a lot of resistance. And then when I met him, it was just an amazing, he was just an amazing interview. I mean, it was just like, he was so honest and forthright. I, what I was going to say is, I think I could hear him and his lawyer arguing on the phone about how he didn't want to do it. Huh. And you get that sometimes. But like, so I was on like the 42nd floor of of the law offices in downtown Dallas. And at, I'm thinking, yeah, this is the day after, you know, a lot of failed attempts, I was going to be able to talk to Randy Gregory. And, you know, the day sort of kept going on and on and, and it wasn't materializing. And finally Moskowitz shows up and it's like, okay, is this going to happen? And, you know, at some point I did hear him sort of, you know, bickering like the married couple that they are about, you know, you got, you know, you need to do this. She came all the way from, you know, the Midwest to, to come and do this. And, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be a horrible interview. You know, I had a flight to catch that night because I'd just been waiting and waiting. And I'm thinking, you know, we drove from downtown. Well, I drove separately all the way to Frisco. And all the way, that 30-minute drive, I'm thinking this this is going to be just, you know, an awful interview, knowing, like, the pushback that he was exhibiting over the phone. And he couldn't have been better. I mean, it was probably one of the better uh, interviews with, you know, a higher profile athlete that I've had in a while. I mean, he was just, you know, he was just super honest and talked about things. You know, sometimes when you're doing an interview, you, you know, you're not going to ask the toughest questions first. Um, But I felt like with him, he was totally willing to answer pretty much, you know, most things. Now he didn't want to talk about, you know, his, Whole, at you know his family situation right. at home, but besides that, he was great about his, the mistakes he made, you know the remorse he felt, you know the hopelessness he felt sometimes, you know when he started smoking marijuana, what you know what that meant to him. He was great. Now going into like some of the mistakes you just mentioned, uh, and like diving to, I mean we can all imagine the bullying was. I mean it was I thought it was a little fascinating that. The part you had in there were you mentioned how he'd be bullied in a classroom, but yet, like they go for recess, like ooh, pick him first because he's so good at football. But then moving forward, how that built up, like his draft tour, if you want to call it that, you know, missing flights, like smoking weed and not listening to the guy, like wait, you know, ah, uh, we're less than a yeah. month out of the combine, and then and then oops, and then I showed up with my Chargers clothes to my Cardinal meeting. Was that immaturity or was that some sort of like self sabotage and? of some kind. Well, I take it into his head, but I will say, I don't know that he was smoking marijuana at that particular time. You know, that he, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that he was, mm-hmm. but, um, he had, so he had 27, he said he had 27 visits over the course of like a month or something. Yep. Um, and here's a guy with social anxiety. So can you imagine going on 27? I, I'm not justifying whatever, but, I, I was thinking about what it would be like if you really don't like and are uncomfortable, you know, being around people or communicating. 
if you've got 27 job interviews to go to, I would think that would be pretty difficult. And you would do whatever, you would so not want to go to that, you know, and that, you know, so he fell asleep on a, he fell asleep in like a, a, you know, an airport gate and missed the Raiders one and uh, the Raiders interview. And so he went on to the next one and, you know, and he didn't have any clothes because his, his luggage went to Oakland and he didn't. And so, you know, the Chargers gave him some gear. Yeah, he should have, you should have probably not worn that to the Arizona interview, but yeah. you know, again, you're you're talking about a guy who, you know, at that point he knew probably his stock was plummeting. Um, he had that positive test. He already sort of had sort of the wrath of a lot of people on him. Mm-hmm. You know, like one thing he said that really annoyed him was that, you know, all these people on social media or whatever were saying that he smoked at the combine. He's like, how could you possibly smoke at the combine? He's like, it's such a controlled environment. It's like you walk outside and, you know, smoke, you know, so he's pretty, there was, you know, you can tell that some of the misperceptions about him, you know, are bother him. And, you know, as much as people say, as much as like athletes say, I don't read that stuff. You have to think that a decent amount of them do. Yeah. But at the same same time, as far as the combine, you do have the part where some guy were in this training process. They're like, "Hey, by the way, you should stop smoking weed a month before yeah. the combine." And they and his friend was like, "Okay," and he said, yeah. ah, "Maybe I'll push it a little bit." And then, you know, yeah, yeah, you know. And I, I like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, you know. But like, you know, you kind of wonder if some of those issues that they've said that he has be it depression, be it anxiety, be it social anxiety. Yes. You know, he, you have to remember too, he also said something to the effect of, you know, at that time, if you're smoking, you know, there was a doctor, Dr. Williams, who's the Rams neurologist, who said that that actually exacerbates if, if it's got the certain levels of THC in there, mm-hmm. that actually exacerbates your, you know, some of the things, if you're dealing with some of those issues, which is fascinating, it makes it worse. It's like it's like it's like you thinking like oh, it's like being on fire and thinking oh, you know what? I'll just pour this gasoline on me to make myself feel better. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that didn't help, but you know, I'm sure there's guys who think, well, what's an extra day or two going to matter? Sure, exactly. You know, one more time. He made it sound like yeah, he just barely, barely, barely did not, you know, pass the test. Like, it was just like they were traced. I mean, obviously, I have no access to those, you know, documents. But, yeah, you would think, hey, if, you're, if your career is on the line and it, it's a difference of millions of dollars, but he talked about that, you know. Mm. He talked about that regret. I mean, you know, he's 21. You don't want to make any excuses for anyone no. and their age or whatever. But, like, you know, and, and certainly not. But I'm just trying to think of all the things that could – but it's just that, a person's head. But it's just when you're on the stage like that, though, not to dismiss or yeah. or give a green light to all those the negative things that were written about him on the internet, like oh that you smoked weed at the combine. I mean, obviously he didn't. I mean, they, like to your point, like when is there time sure. to do that if you wanted to? But the point being that in today's climate of you know where it seems that a, an outright lie is like the third cousin of the actual truth, you know, where you just evolve yeah. it in a way you know, from fact where there's just enough of commonality in the wording 
that people go, oh, that must be true because it sounds more interesting. That yeah, like, like that's sort of like was part of the perfect storm. So like here you have a guy with all these, you know, social anxiety and um, depression issues on one of the biggest sporting stages that this com- country has to offer at the age of 21 and then making a mistake like that was just lighting the fuse for it to explode with all the people that claim to know everything about everything in their comments on the internet. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, well, and you know, you could think it, say you're young. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can look at it this way. And this is probably, I remember when I did a story on Josh Gordon, probably about three years ago when, you know, he was testing positive and obviously running into all these issues of suspensions. Um, as marijuana becomes more and more, believe me, not like it's not already mainstream, but you know, obviously there's a, there's a window where guys know they're going to be tested. You know, you're going to be tested from April to August, I think. And, um, and then if you avoid that, you know, it's basically now you can smoke away if if you're not already in the program. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the program, then you're going to be tested, you know, numerous times. Yeah. Watch Uh, but yeah, so, but think about that, though. Like, mm-hmm. I remember just, it, I remember in talking to Josh Gordon, so you are pretty much going to be out of the league if you smoke, but yet your teammates are smoking with no repercussions. Right. I mean, it is sort of a, and I'm sure at some point it, the system will be tweaked. I don't know how, I can't predict that, but right now, yeah, it does seem like, you know, and especially if you're young, you know, you're you're thinking to yourself, how can this be fair that, you know, but usually if somebody doesn't, if somebody gets to the point where they're smoking when, you know, they, when they know they've got this window where they should avoid it and they're still doing it or they're pushing the envelope, yes, they probably have a problem, which exactly. was the case here, you know. It's like, it's it's not so much, you know, but that's sort of the common thought. It's like, how could you be so stupid? Well, a lot of times it's not that, you know, it's, it's an addiction. It's mm-hmm. like a sickness, like anything else. I mean, they do it because they think they need it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not as simple as just labeling someone as, you know, practicing poor judgment. So moving on to where we are now to ask you sort of a final question here. How much does the, you know, in his words, boring, Life, how much does that fuel him, like the peace and the focus of the simplicity of, like, wake up, play football, go home? I, th- I think, yeah, I think it's helpful, and it's it's probably a relief to some degree that, you know, but by the same token, I do, I did get the sense that he feels as if uh, he grows tired of the constraints that have been put on him, mm-hmm. you know, that he's 26 years old now. And that, you know, basically, in some ways, it's like he's a kid and that he has all. But these are safeguards to make sure that, you know, he doesn't. Well, listen, it's like he's not just a kid. He's a kid that's been grounded. Like, you will go to school and come home. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got an accountability partner who basically, you know, has to be with him, you know, live with him. And and so things like that, you know, he, he has all these these safeguards in place, which are helping him. But, you know, I think to some degree he would like some of those taken off Mm -hmm. and, you know, so he could be sort of a regular person, but 
you know, that you can't, I guess, like right now, you can't have both of those things. You can't have, right. you know, total freedom in that way. Um, it's like hating how your medicine you know, makes you play. feel. It's like hating yeah. how your medicine makes you yeah. feel, not unreal. But then part of you realizes if I don't take this medicine, the wheels could come off pretty quickly. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, it's like, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are really educational, you know, and, and so many times, you know, you think, you think, well, okay, you were in a rehab center. Why didn't it work, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's because it's an addiction. And so they're just trying to make sure that he does all the things he needs to do so he doesn't go back there. Well, that's you know, And so, yeah, it, yeah. I think it's sort of great, though, in a, you know, lemon, this is a terrible situation, path that he was on, but where he is now, I think it sort of helped to take your words like, how come it didn't work? It It's just another chapter on the ever-evolving book of letting people realize that, you know, mental illness and substance abuse are not character flaws. Like, these are illnesses. But to your point of, you went to rehab, how come it didn't work? People need to realize that's yeah. sort of... That's not a character flaw. It's sort of like you had chemotherapy and you got cancer again. How come it didn't work? It's it's literally yeah. the same thing. Yeah, you know, and that's you know his story is still ongoing. I mean, that his you know, like the story said, it's like his standing in the league is tenuous. I mean, if he looks up, he's not going to have as much latitude as someone who doesn't have his history. But, you know, also staying sober is, is such a challenge in and of itself. You know, you, yes. you're not cured necessarily. You're, it's, it's every day. Um, every day it's a, it's a battle, um, I would suspect. So. Absolutely. Well, I know that we'll all be rooting for him. See how uh, there, are enough, uh, there are enough sad stories. So let's, uh, let's focus on the ones with the happy endings. Yeah, well, and you know that his ending is still yet to be written. I mean, he has exactly he, the good news for him is that he has time to rewrite it. But yeah, it's definitely not it's definitely not written yet. Well, I'm sure we'll be uh, reading no matter what happens. We'll be reading more about him in the months and years to come. Liz Merrill, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Mike. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.